I don't know uh, how you're feeling um, during the pandemic, and uh, we are a couple months into now. Um, I was thinking a little bit this week about uh, our future plans and some of the things that are changing, and, and it got me thinking about some of the things that I miss, um, have been missing uh, during this time, and one of those things is traveling. Um, and we might think of traveling as getting on an airplane or a boat to somewhere. Right now, I'd just love to travel more than a couple blocks from my house uh, would be nice just to go to the North Coast or something like that. And, and hopefully that's coming um, soon. But um, one of the things I love most about traveling is experiencing new cultures. And you get to go to cultures that are different in the way that they may eat, the food that they eat, uh, the way that they gather as family units, or the way that they approach work or, or worship, uh, all these different things and go into places that are very different in their culture, um, how they think about things, their worldview, uh, and how that infiltrates into all kinds of different ways that they organize their life and, and orient their lives around certain kind of things. And uh, uh, that has implications for all kinds of things, what, the, what that culture think, thinks is important, what they value, uh, what they elevate, how they spend their time, how they spend their money, how they organize family life, their personal lives, all these sorts of things. And um, we're beginning a new series uh, today called Kingdom Culture. And we, what we want to do in this is really we're going to focus on the parables of Jesus. Um, whenever we look at the Gospels, uh, in every account of Jesus starting his public ministry, he's starting it with a declaration um, about a new kingdom. And so he'll, he'll use language like the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, we should repent or we should turn and we, and we should believe or repent and believe. Why? Because the kingdom of God is near, is at hand. Um, even when he sent his disciples out, uh, we see in Luke, he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Um, and so in many ways, it'd be like you going away to a different place, a different kingdom, if you will, and coming back and then announcing what that kingdom is like uh, to your friends. Um, this is what we ate. This is, this is the weird things that they do there. This is why it's different there than it is here. All sorts of different ways. In many ways, announcing um, the kingdom of God. And this is what Jesus does when he comes on earth. Uh, and he begins his public ministry when he sends his disciples out. It is categorized in the scriptures as announcing or proclaiming something about the kingdom of God now being here among us. Um, we often sometimes, depending on maybe the tradition you grew up in, don't think about the kingdom of God that way. Uh, oftentimes when you hear people talk about Christians or Christianity, uh, it's kind of characterized as we're here in this old creation that's fallen, it's sinful, it's broken. And one day Jesus is going to return. He's going to take his followers away from this place to, uh, to the new creation or to heaven uh, in that way. And uh, we can, that has all kinds of implications about how we view our life here now and on earth uh, and what we expect in the future. Uh, but that's not, when you actually look at the teachings of Jesus, if, if we'll actually listen to, to his teachings, that's not what Jesus, that's not how Jesus characterizes the new kingdom. Uh, the, the kingdom of God, the new creation. Over and over again, he's said, no, it's not something that we are leaving here to go to, but it is something that is coming here to us, that the kingdom of God is colliding with uh, the kingdom of earth, the kingdom of man, um, that this old creation is passing away, but this new creation is invading the old, um, that it is taking over. Um, we're not leaving an old creation for the new creation, but the new creation is coming. And this is primarily what Jesus is doing in his ministry. He is announcing the coming of that kingdom, that it is here, this kingdom that you've been promised, uh, at least the Jews through their uh, scripture would have been promised. The Messiah, the king that is coming to rule and to reign is me, 
Jesus is announcing that he is that kingdom. There's a new way now to be human. There's a new way to think about how we orient our lives. Uh, In many ways, there's a a new culture that is breaking in, one full of grace and mercy and forgiveness and love and justice uh, that will reign. And so when we think about uh, over these next couple of months, kingdom culture, this is what we want to get at the heart of. What was Jesus announcing in his public ministry? And when he told these stories, which he, he, he often does, uh, through these parabolic kind of um, ways of talking, what was he about? Jesus um, often, one of his, his most frequent ways of teaching was teaching through parables. Um, these parables are, are short stories. Uh, there are these stories that were powerful. They would make you think about it. They would um, draw you in. You would have to actually do some mental kind of work. It would make you think about it. It'd be the kind of story that you'd be thinking about a couple days later. You might wake up and, and be thinking, well, what did he mean by that exactly? And if we're going to follow Jesus, if we want to be disciples of Jesus, um, if we want to, to actually live as if his kingdom has come now, that it would be um, on earth as it is in heaven, um, then the parables of Jesus are going to be key to that. We're going to need to spend some time in understanding these things. And that's the tricky part, is the understanding Um, because we need to know and understand much of what Jesus is teaching or what he's trying to get at through his parables. Um, Often we, in in our modern kind of Western way of thinking, we like teaching that's direct, it's concise, it's clear. Um, Certainly as as preachers, that's our aim. We want to try to be as concise as possible. We want to be as clear as possible. We want to lay things out in points. Um, But when you look at Jesus, Jesus didn't teach that way. Um, very often. His teaching was almost like a riddle. It was almost like a, 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 a mystery that he invited you into to think about, um, to, to solve, to, to unravel. Um, and it forces us then to do some work. It forces us to listen closely, and to, to ruminate on some things, to, to meditate on these things. When you think about Jesus and the immediate context of him coming, and starting his public ministry, Jesus often had a, a mixed audience. So it would talk about Jesus and the crowds would be following him. And, the, and in, in these crowds, you're going to have a mixed audience. Um, we see in this same chapter that we're looking at today, we're looking at the end of Matthew 13. Uh, next week, we'll go back to a different part of, of Matthew 13. But um, we see the crowds are pressing in on Jesus and Jesus gets into this boat and uh, he casts off just a little bit off the shore. And basically, he's creating this kind of uh, natural amphitheater. Um, words travel uh, farther and more clear over water, so he creates a little bit of distance between him and the crowds with water. And here he is. These crowds are pressing in, and this is Jesus's opportunity to speak to the crowds. And uh, what would you expect if you're in that crowd? You've heard about this prophet. You've maybe heard about his healing, his power uh, that he has. You're, you're curious. You've pressed into here. And what would you expect Jesus to say? I don't know about you, but I would expect him to want to be as clear and concise and and maybe uh, almost like a politician lay out a certain kind of manifesto in that way. But Jesus opens up his his talk with there once was a farmer and this farmer went about throwing out some seeds. And uh, Jesus just tells these kind of stories, these kind of parables, and and they're there for a reason. Uh, They're there to to do several different things. He, within those crowds, had followers who loved him. No doubt people whose lives had been changed. Uh, maybe they had experienced healing or, or a, a neighbor or a friend or a family member had been healed by Jesus or 
um, whatever it is. So they're, they're there. They're interested. They want to know more. They love him. They follow it. They're, they're there to follow him. No doubt you had people that were maybe just indifferent. Uh, they had heard uh, about this guy. And then let's go check him out and let's hear what he has to say. And then within those crowds, you had enemies as well. Um, we see that his enemies are, are, are listening um, to his teaching to try to trip him up, to try to find ways to entrap him. And ultimately, they're going to plot to kill him. And so here's Jesus, and he tells these stories. These stories. There once was a farmer. Um, there once uh, was a merchant. There once was a man walking through a field. And then he ends. He often ends these kind of parables with this phrase: "Let him who has ears, let him hear." What does he mean by "let him who has ears"? Don't we all have ears, Jesus? Um, but he's not talking about those that have physical ears, but those who have uh, the desire to hear, those who want to hear, let them hear. For Jesus, uh, for, for Jesus's audience, uh, those that were his enemies uh, that are there listening, and uh, they're there maybe um, thinking about uh, how's this man gonna come and actually set up a kingdom? Is he gonna talk about the temple? How's he gonna overthrow Rome? And here he is talking about uh, farmers and birds and, and trees and, and seeds and pearls and, and treasures buried in a field. Like, what is he on about? This guy's just kind of crazy. He's just some, just some kind of weird prophet out here telling stories. But for the curious, for those that actually wanted to hear what Jesus had to say, they were open, um, whose hearts were open to, to actually seeing Jesus uh, in the tradition of the prophets um, in, in fulfilling the promises of God, fulfilling the covenants of God, their hearts were open. Um, he says, let those people actually hear. And for them, it's this invitation to think, to ponder, to, to unpack the meaning behind what Jesus is actually getting at, to change people's ideas, as well as provide new paradigms and ways of thinking for them as well. And this is what the parables do. They both reveal and conceal, depending on how you think about Jesus how you receive Jesus. If you see Jesus as somebody that's kind of, uh, oh, he's a, he's a good teacher, he's a moral kind of guy, he's out here to kind of maybe tell us some, some moral tales. Um, we don't really get to the bottom of what Jesus is really after. Things are being concealed. In Matthew 13, earlier in, in the chapter, um, he actually talks about the purposes of these parables. The, his disciples hear him after this dialogue and they ask him, you know, why do you talk in these kind of ways? So in verse 10, it says, The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given, and he will be given in abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And then he goes on and he quotes um, Isaiah. Jesus, his parabolic teaching is in this tradition of the prophets, like Isaiah. He quotes from Isaiah quite a bit. Um, often there to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And so Jesus says, hey, those who have, um, like you, my disciples, those in the crowds who actually ha have what has been given, you're here, you're open to Jesus, you're, you're seeking after Jesus and his kingdom, you're actually wanting to understand uh, what the prophets were talking about to those people, more will be given. An abundance more will be given. But those who have not, um, those who have their own agenda, those who want to use Jesus for their agenda, let's overthrow Rome. Let's set up the kingdom now. You're going to be the king. Jesus says, 
even what they have will be taken away from them. They're not going to understand. And this plays out as people have expectations they want Jesus to fulfill in the context of, of, of the Gospels. Um, they're occupied by Rome. The prophets of, of the Torah have promised a Messiah um, who would rule over his people as king. And so here comes Jesus uh, declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand. And yet he's a poor, essentially homeless prophet. And he goes around, he's healing the sick. He's ministering to the poor. He's eating with sinners. He's welcoming the marginalized. Uh, he's having dinner with uh, you know, tax collectors and sex workers, and, and he's inviting them into the kingdom of God. What is going on with this Jesus? This isn't the Jesus that we uh, want or that we certainly expected. What are you doing about Rome? When are you going to overthrow them? When are you going to rise up us as your people? And so many of Jesus's enemies wanted a, a conflict with Rome, and Jesus is, is here to announce what the kingdom of God is like. Often these parables fit into three kind of uh, themes, three kind of thematic categories. One is the surprise of God's kingdom or how the kingdom of God is arriving. It's not always the way that you are going to think about it coming. Um, secondly, it, it, often his parables deal with the upside, the upside down nature of God's kingdom. The way things are in the world and the way things are in God's kingdom are often opposite from each other. The first will actually be last. The greatest will be the least, and the least will be the greatest. This upside-down nature of God's kingdom. And then there's parables that really uh, talk about God's kingdom as requiring the decision. Um, these might be crisis parables, right, where someone is put in a place of having to make a decision. Will they reject God's kingdom and that rejection leading to judgment and destruction? Or will they accept God's kingdom? And that lead to a life of flourishing, a life of peace, and eternity with God. And so we might ask the question, well, why would Jesus want to conceal the meaning of these parables to certain folks? And um, we see in the, in the Gospels him explaining these sorts of things. And, and often it's because uh, he is wanting to buy time, essentially. Um, he knows that if he were to speak maybe more clearly, more forthrightly, um, things would drive to that kind of causing a riot and his execution, which eventually they do. And so even as you see Jesus telling parables, the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the closer he gets to uh, his impending crucifixion that he knows is coming, that he knows is at the right time according to God's plan, you see his parables become more and more intense, more and more um, uh, uh, driving to conflict in, in nature, this decision-making kind of parables. And so he's, he, he, he needs time with his disciples. For those that have ears, he wants them to hear. He's going to teach them. He's going to disciple them. He's going to train them. And often these parables, I think, are things that even the disciples at the time didn't understand fully. But he knew they would come back to after his death and resurrection. Um, and he knew that we would be talking about them 2,000 years later. And here we are. Um, so much contained um, within these parables for us to think about. And so that's what we want to do. The first thing that I want us to, to think about really, though, is that the parables, really how we think about parables. Um, I was kind of told growing up, parables are these kind of heavenly stories with an earthly meaning, um, kind of like Aesop's fables. You know, they're, they're kind of moralistic tales. And so we read these uh, stories and we think about where am I in this story and uh, how am I to think about life morally in this? And then I take out these kind of moral truths and apply them to my lives. Um, and, and 
while some of that is true, that's not really what the parables are firstly and foremostly about. Parables are first and foremost about Jesus and his kingdom. They're not necessarily about us. Are there things that we learn um, from that? Yes. Are there things that we need to uh, think about on, on how this impacts how we live as people of the kingdom? Absolutely. But our first and foremost job is to think about where is Jesus in this parable and what does it say about his kingdom? And often we will do that then by reading them in the context of the Gospels. Um, and we see what the message Jesus wanted those who were listening to or hearing his parables understand. Once we understand the dynamic of what is Jesus doing in this particular moment in time? Who is his audience? Why is he telling them this parable? What is this announcing about him? Who he is? And what this means for the kingdom of God being at hand and being near? What does he want his listeners to think about and respond to? It's only then that we're able then to think about us. How do we then apply these to our lives 2,000 years later? And the nice thing, the great thing about the, the parables, or really all of the scripture, is that it is timeless. It does apply to us. But if we, if we cut out that first part and we just jump straight to, to where we are and how, where am I in this and how does this apply to me, we often will come to the wrong meaning, the wrong conclusion. We often maybe read too much into those parables. We over kind of uh, emphasize certain things or we over interpret. Um, so yes, they're full of symbols. Jesus will explain this meant this and this was a symbol for this. And we can learn uh, these things that apply to us, but not detached from what is going on when Jesus is actually telling them in the story. So another way to think about that is Jesus isn't necessarily teaching systematic theology in his parables. Jesus isn't going, this is what I want you to know about salvation. This is what I want you to know about uh, the afterlife in, in great detail. This is what I want you to know, you know about whatever, whatever it is. Jesus isn't doing systematic theology um, within that. And so we need to be careful that we're not over-interpreting um, the scriptures. And that's why we read the Bible in context. And what is Jesus doing to the audience of who's listening? Why is he telling them this particular parable? We come to that meaning first, and then we're able to then think about what that applies to us. Most of these parables are, are either three-point parables, two-point parables, or just one, one main point parables. So you can kind of break them into that. And often those, those points kind of coincide with a character or a, a characterization of an, an object um, within that. Um, the parable we'll look at um, today is, is one of those. It's just a simple one-point parables or a collection, a cluster of, of these parables really that are driving to the same thing. And so our text today, uh, let's, let's start to um, look into that. We needed a little bit of introduction. We'll, we'll speak more about this as we, as we unpack these parables as we go, but I wanted to set the table as it were. Um, so that you know we're getting ready to do some fine dining. If you've ever walked into like a fine dining establishment, um, it's different than McDonald's. You walk into McDonald's, you look around, there's nothing on the table. Until you get your tray, nothing there. You walk into uh, Muddler's Club or Ox or Dean's or someplace like that, and you know things are getting ready to go down. Uh, often there's white tablecloth, uh, there's you know there's glassware, there's there's your you know things. Everything that you need is already set out and laid out in a beautiful way, and you're like, okay, we're getting ready to do some eating here. And so that's what I wanted to do in this first part of, of this morning is kind of set the table for this series for us to think about what is Jesus doing in these parables? Why does he talk this way? What is he trying to reveal? What is he trying to conceal? Why is he trying to do those things? How do we think about interpreting the parables? And then uh, we'll look at a, a short one, one point parable today. So actually a couple parables that are essentially the same parable. So as we see in our teaching text, Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field 
which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. These two parables really are essentially the same parable. We're looking at them really together as one. And this is the main point. There's one main point in in these parables that Jesus wants us to know. It's this, it's true disciples are those who recognize that God's kingdom is so valuable. It's of such great worth that it is worth sacrificing whatever it takes to be a part of it. It's worth sacrificing whatever it takes to be a part of the, to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. Um, so again, we don't want to overinterpret that. There's, well, what about the ethics of burying a field? Is he being dishonest there? Is he trying to do that? Or, or this merchant buys us. Is, can we buy ourselves into the kingdom? Again, um, Jesus is speaking, uh, he's using metaphors. And, 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 and actually this story is, is a Greco-Roman kind of motif that's, that's used throughout that kind of time. Um, and so metaphors aren't meant to be pressed on every single detail. Um, we can get into trouble when we do that. And all analogies eventually kind of break down. So here's the reality. Most of us don't actually literally have to give up everything to be a part of the kingdom of God. Um, we are told of the uh, story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. And he says, what do I need to be part of the kingdom? You know, I've obeyed the, the Torah. I've obeyed the commandments. I've done all this. And, and Jesus says, I want you to sell all that you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And, and the rich young ruler goes away dismayed because that was just a cost that was too high for him. Um, the kingdom of God wasn't valuable enough for him to, to be willing to do whatever it took to sell all of that, if that's what it meant, to be a part of the kingdom of God. But most of us don't actually have to literally sell all that we have. Even Zacchaeus, who was dishonest, who was robbing people, um, whenever he comes to put his faith in Jesus, doesn't, doesn't give everything of, it, of his wealth back. He actually only gives up a little bit of, of maybe more than half. We see wealthy people uh, that are financing ministry all throughout the scripture. It's wealthy women that are financing Jesus's ministry as he goes. We see Lydia. Uh, a, a businesswoman um, who's, who finances some of Paul's ministry. Church meets in her home. She's using her resources for this. And so there's, again, the point isn't wealth is bad. The point is the kingdom of God is far more well, uh, valuable than any of our earthly treasures would ever um, uh, lead us to. We see this in, in, in our modern day, right? We are blessed to live in a country with religious freedom, but not everybody even today lives in them. Um, there are believers in places like North Korea um, who literally have to uh, choose. Um, it, will they be willing to give up everything, maybe even their life, uh, maybe be sent off to a prison camp for following Jesus? Uh, missionaries and, and church planters and all sorts of people make dramatic sacrifices um, and give up uh, family and creature comforts and whatever it is to go and share the good news of the gospel. And so Jesus's point is that a commitment to Christ, a commitment to living in the kingdom of God is one that requires willingness for sacrificial living. Is the king, do I see Jesus and following him, his ways, being a part of the kingdom of God as a treasure far more valuable and worth than anything the world could offer me, than anything the world could offer me. Um, Paul put it this way. Paul, Paul said it in no uncertain terms. He said, everything else is like dung compared to uh, Christ and his kingdom. So everything else for Paul 
that was that if you were going to compare that to um, Christ and His kingdom, it was like dung in in worth. Um, so uh, dung is worse than nothing. Um, if you don't believe me, uh, would you rather have nothing in your hand or a pile of dung in your hand? So <laughs> dung is worse worse than nothing, right? I would just take nothing in my hand in that way. And and so Paul says no. Everything else compared to Christ and his kingdom is actually less valuable than nothing. It's worse than nothing. And this is something that Paul Paul knew, right? Paul says, hey, wh- whether I have a lot, whether I have much, or whether I have little or nothing, I have found the secret of being content. And that secret is that it's Christ in me that makes, it's, it's Christ, it's, it's being a part of his kingdom, his kingdom in me. That means that I can do all things, whether I have a lot of things or little things, these things, all these things are like dung compared to Christ and his kingdom. And so here we have um, these choices. This is a choice that even um, Jesus had to face. Do you remember when right before he starts his ministry, the spirit leads him out into the wilderness and there Satan tempts him after a 40 day fast. He tempts him with food. Uh, he tempts him. Uh, uh, he takes him up on, on a high place, um, and he, he says, "Everything that you see uh, can be yours. Um, you, you can have everything that's here. You can have the world if you'll just worship me. If you'll forsake your father and worship me." And Jesus's response is, "Worship the Lord your God only. Only Him only shall you serve." Wise, because. Even the whole world wasn't worth comparing for Jesus. What he knew was of ultimate value. The presence of God and being a part of his kingdom. Because this earth is passing away in a sense. This isn't, uh, we are under the corruption of sin. And so even the best that this world has to offer is nothing in compare uh, to the riches that we can have in Christ. And so the question for us is that, do we treasure Jesus above all? Do we value his kingdom, us being a citizen in his kingdom, being in Christ, more valuable or worth sacrificing um, for, worth sacrificing maybe even all for if it came to that? And um, if, I, if I'm honest with myself, I'm not sure that I always think that way. There are times where I catch myself on, right? This pandemic has done a lot of things. It's stripped a lot of things away. Um, it's given us a lot more time to, I think, consider um, our lives. Um, maybe that's one of the benefits of, of this. It's been uncomfortable, um, for sure. There's been a lot of it that, um, uh, that hasn't been enjoyable. I think we're all ready for it to be over. Um, and yet we have it pretty well off compared to some people who are experiencing this pandemic, for sure. But that doesn't make our discomfort any less real to us. But it has made us maybe wonder, I hope, and realize what's important. And maybe there's been things that we've been giving more importance to than others, even in, 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 in kind of uh, interesting ways, in, in kind of non-Christian ways. Well, are there non-Christian ways to, to what I'm about to say, I guess? Uh, it's been interesting to watch even local governments around the world, like city councils. So even, even this week, our city council, um, as well as, you know, Paris has done it and Los Angeles has done it and, and other, other global cities around the world, have actually, because there's been a lot less cars on the road and everything like that, it's been a time for them to think, what would it be like to give more space? What are our cities, uh, have, we, have we valued um, giving space away to automobiles and that kind of transportation? And so you've seen the pedestrianization 
of, uh, of streets now. We're not going to allow cars here. We think it's actually better for humans to, to have some space where there's none of the, all of these different ways. So what's, what been, what's been interesting in that is this time has caused even local governments to stop and to question, have the way that we've been doing things been the best way um, for the citizens of our cities? Are there better ways for us to reallocate um, certain kind of energies or funds or, or space even um, for us to flourish better as a community? And I just wonder if individually the Lord might not be doing that for us during this time as well. Um, for us to, to take stock of our life, to actually maybe reprioritize or to reorient our lives, uh, to give us a chance to reset some things. Um, certainly I've been thinking about some of that for myself, for my family. And, um, and, and doing just that, just continuing to think about that and to wait on the Lord, um, not to just try to, um, to last through this pandemic, but to allow him to do to, some deep work in our soul. Um, and the ultimate foundation that that rests on is, do I believe that Jesus and his kingdom are ultimate in my life? Are they most valuable? Would I be like this man? Um, and it's interesting, the characters in these two in these two parables are slightly different. One is just a guy. Um, he's not out seeking. He's not out searching particularly. He's just out for a walk, <laughs> apparently, going through a field. And he stumbles upon, apparently, this kind of treasure, this treasure uh, that he wasn't necessarily looking for. The other's a merchant who's, who is seeking, who's searching, who's, who's looking. He knows what he's looking for in some ways. Maybe this is the apathetic kind of person. Maybe today you're listening and tuning in on this and you're like, yeah, I just was kind of curious. I thought I'd jump on. Um, maybe you've stumbled upon this as it were. Maybe you might actually discover, you know what? There's something to be investigated here. This seems like there's a treasure that's here. I need to, to go away and actually find out what do I need to do more to be a part of this, to, to, to obtain this treasure. Or maybe you are a spiritual seeker. Um, it's been interesting um, how more people have joined online services, even people that were kind of irreligious uh, during this time. Um, you know, prayer has been Googled, <laughs> you know, exponentially more. Maybe that's more like you, the merchant, looking and seeking uh, for something. And, and the good news that Jesus wants you to know this morning is that Jesus in his kingdom is that thing that you've been looking for. It is this pearl of great price so much more valuable that the merchant is willing to sell everything else he has, all these other pearls, all these other things that he thought were valuable, that now compared to this aren't valuable at all, or not as valuable. I'm going to sell all this so that I can obtain this one thing. And so is our commitment to Jesus and his kingdom on that par? Or do we think of it more as like this additional add-on? Um, yeah, it's one of these kind of pearls. I, I have several, I have a collection of pearls, uh, the, the merchant might say. Um, you know, this is my pearl of employment. This is my pearl of family. This is my pearl of, of recreation. This is my pearl of God and his kingdom. This is, you know, it's one of many. That's not how the merchant sees the kingdom of God as all. He's like, it is worth sacrificing all these things for. And again, the metaphor breaks down because God doesn't ask us to reject our family, to reject work, to reject recreation, to reject any of these things. What the kingdom of God does is it subsumes all of these things into the kingdom of God and then reorients them. It changes the nature of our work. It changes the nature of how we rest. It changes the nature of family and community. It actually makes them better. It actually re, uh, recreates them back into the reason that God created them in the first place. And yes, things fall away. Things that aren't of the kingdom of God 
uh, must be stripped away from. That's why it's repent, to turn away from certain things and believe in the kingdom of God. These things come hand in hand. Are we willing to count the cost? Are we willing to sell all to obtain the kingdom of God? And if the question is, well, I'm not so sure, or why not? And then this might lead us then to the, to the last part of the text that we read this morning, the parable of the dragnet. And this is a way that Jesus is, is explaining, isn't it? Verse 47, he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net, this is like a fishing net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted out the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I wonder if one of the reasons that we, if, if I, if, if, if us, if we don't actually feel that God's kingdom is most valuable overall is that we just don't feel the urgency of eternity anymore. We just don't feel the urgency of eternity anymore. It's just not popular, is it, to talk about hell or judgment or anything like that at all, um, even, even in kind of Christian circles. Um, so um, there's not a kind of moral conscious to prick anymore where by and large people believed in, in absolute rights, absolute moral right and wrongs and had a framework of, of justice where things that were wrong should be punished or you should be judged for those things. All of that has been kind of dissipated and diluted to some kind of degree in our culture. And so the idea of judgment or punishment um, from a morally absolute being like God is just unpalatable to most people. But Jesus isn't among most people. And Jesus talks about this idea of, of, a, of a coming judgment um, of, uh, uh, of, of the judgment of God and in even the punishment of God um, often and often in these parables. Here we have this idea of a net catching all kinds of fish. That would have been like every type of fish. So every type of human being. Jesus has called his followers to be fishers, not of fish anymore, but fishers of men. But he's using these analogies that they understand. And just as fish would, uh, you know, this isn't a rod and reel fish where you're trying to catch a certain kind of fish with a certain kind of bait. This is a, like a dragnet, and you've just pulled in all kinds. And not all kind, not all these fish are 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 good. They're not good to eat. They're not they're not able to sell in the market. And so these fish are discarded. They're they're burned up and thrown away. And Jesus is using this analogy for those who, again, like the kingdom of God, um, have either ears to hear and accept Jesus in his kingdom or reject Jesus in his kingdom and are thrown out into, into judgment, into what he, he uses this imagery of a fiery furnace and a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The rejection of Jesus leads to um, human misery, uh, suffering. Now, the question for us then is, do you believe in the danger of God's kind of eternal judgment in that way? That's probably something we don't give enough thought to. Um, it seems to have kind of fallen out of, of uh, popular thought or thinking. But this is one of the reasons why we try to teach uh, the whole of the Bible, um, and particularly even Jesus' teachings, is that he's forcing us to confront things that we wouldn't necessarily want to confront. Um, now, when we think about, well, what does Jesus mean by hell? 
Listen, this is, this is something scholars continue to try to unpack. He, he does use metaphors. He is, he is using these kind of stories and images in this way. Is everything meant to be taken kind of literal? Here's, here's the bottom line. I, I'm not 100% I'm not dogmatically sure. Is hell a place of actual flame? Um, it seems like Jesus talks about fire, but also complete darkness. Uh, those two things, if you take them literally, can't be the same. Fire actually produces light um, within that way. And so, listen, the bottom line is I'm not exactly sure, um, if I'm being honest with you. What exactly is hell? Is it, is it, is it actual flames? Uh, is it like a lake of, of fire in that sense? Or is Jesus using these images to try to get us to, uh, to think about um, uh, judgment in a different kind of way? Um, here's, what I, here's what I think we do need to recognize is what, what do we know Jesus meant? And then we can, we can talk about the differences because I don't think that if uh, simply by saying a place of kind of conscious, eternal separation from God, um, I don't think that necessarily commits you to believing in literal fire or literal outer, outer darkness. It might be those things. Um, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great uh, Divorce, I just want to uh, quote um, a little bit here. He describes the process of, of the redeemed, of Jesus talks about those that have received Jesus in his kingdom, moving ever closer to God. And the unredeemed, those who are unrighteous or evil that have rejected Jesus, moving ever further away. And he depicts in this kind of vivid and creative detail what creatures completely separated from, the, from everything bad or from everything good might look like. So if we think about eternity in that way, if we think about those that have received Jesus, have entered into the kingdom of God, being eternally separated from everything bad, um, from sin, of evil, of corruption, of, of greed, of, uh, of abuse, whatever those things are, what kind of people are we, are we ever increasingly becoming like God-like? And the result of that, um, uh, for C.S. Lewis, he, he said this, he said, from our current fallen perspective, we might look at those kind of people and be tempted to worship them thinking that they're like God, like God's. And then the unredeemed, those who have rejected Jesus, they've confirmed in their freely chosen rebellion against God, they've shorn themselves off from the influence of the Holy Spirit, of other believers, of everything good that mitigates evil in this world. Those people might actually look like devils and demons themselves, whose place of torment they inhabit. He says, perhaps everyone who winds up in hell will never again want to be around things having to do with Jesus. Lewis, um, he kind of sums up a lot of this, these portraits uh, with this slogan. He says, there are two kind of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. It doesn't seem like the scripture um, allows us to, to just kind of come to a place of annihilation, in my opinion. I don't know exactly what eternal conscious separation from God looks like. Is that literal hell? Or is it, is, it a, is, it a, is it an earth that has all of God's grace, all of his mercy, all of his common grace to us completely removed? Um, and we're just left with a humanity that is completely torn uh, inward on itself, that has completely rejected anything good, um, but will, will exist in that kind of place forever, eternally rejecting God eternally not wanting to be in the presence of God and all that is good. Um, Jesus, when he talks about hell often, um, he pits the saved, those that have received God's kingdom and those who have rejected it uh, against one another. So he talks about uh, sheep and goats that are separated out. And when he talks about everlasting life, 
Um, it's clearly conscious. It's it's a, it's an eternal existence, and he contrasts that with this everlasting punishment. And so it makes sense to think that that is also uh, conscious and eternal. And the details of that, scholars have continued to to mull over and debate. But what we do know is it's not a place that anybody wants to be. It's a place of weeping. It's a place of anger, of gnashing of teeth. It's a place of of eternal conscious kind of suffering, um, experiencing the judgment of God that we have chosen for ourselves, a rejection of God and his kingdom. I'm going to establish my kingdom. I'm going to be the king of my castle. And that leads us to a place of death. Jesus comes telling these parables, unpacking for us later through the apostles uh, after his death and resurrection, much more straightforward kind of teaching on this of how we can actually receive Jesus and his kingdom. We'll have more opportunities in the coming weeks to contemplate our response to the kingdom of God and the king himself, Jesus, as we continue to look at um, these uh, uh, parables from the scripture. Jesus asks them this question. It's interesting. In verse 51, he says, have you understood all these things? And they say to him, yes. And he takes them at face value. Uh, his, his disciples didn't always understand everything that he said. And I think that's interesting. Um, Jesus probably knew what they understood and what they didn't. He just takes them at face value and he goes on knowing that some of these things they'll come back to after his death and resurrection. He's buying time. He's, he's, he's revealing. He's concealing. But there will come a time when all will be revealed. And you and I are in a much more um, place of revelation now that having the completed uh, scripture, we have the Holy Spirit illuminating these things to us. And so even you and I are at a much more advantageous perspective than the disciples were at this time. Um, whenever Jesus is, is asking them, do you understand? And then he says to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of God is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Um, Jesus's parables um, are fulfilling what is old. The old covenant is being replaced by a new covenant. Jesus says so. If you remember from our Sermon on the Mount series, Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's bringing out um, what is new from what is old. One thing that is clear, it wasn't just the disciples or Paul um, that taught that God was worth sacrificing everything for. It wasn't just, uh, you know, these elite kind of Christians who were willing to do that. We can even do that now. All these missionaries who go, you know, far afield or those people being persecuted in, in you know, China or North Korea or, or Africa, Nigeria, in India for their faith. These are these high level Christians who have to sacrifice all. For me, it's just kind of an add on because I don't live in that place. I'm not I'm not confronted with that choice, but we are confronted with that choice. It just looks different for us. But it's clear that it wasn't just Paul. It's not just these high elite kind of um, people that thought that the kingdom of God was worth sacrificing him for, himself for. Because even God himself sacrifices his own son, Jesus, on a cross, the most humiliating, the most brutal method of, of execution to make a way for us, for you and I, to make a way for you and I to be made a part of the kingdom of God, to become a citizen of the kingdom. It's his body. It's his blood shed for you as we're getting ready to celebrate. Again, as we, as we take communion of his, his body broken for us, represented in, in bread. His blood shed for us as we, as we take the wine with that. And he brings us to, this is a parable that brings us to a decision point. It brings us to a place of accepting and, or rejecting God and his kingdom. And so 
there's lots of ways to, to reject him, isn't it? Maybe it's like the Pharisees who outright had a plot. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to just eradicate Jesus from the earth. That's one way to reject him. Other people within this crowd, it was just more apathetic, right? That's probably most folks heard Jesus. Eh, that's interesting. Nice story. That was kind of entertaining for a while. And then just kind of move on with their life. Some people listen and think, man, that guy's just like a crazy hippie guy running around telling a story about farmers and trees and birds and stuff. And, you know, man, I'm, I need to get on with my life in the real world here. And we can have all these responses to Jesus. I wonder what's your response? What will be your response as we unpack Jesus's parables more and more? Will you have ears to hear? Because this is what Jesus says. Those who have ears will hear. And that's my, my uh, uh, hope for us this morning, is that if you're listening to this this morning, you'll have ears to hear, that you'll lean in, that you'll want to hear the voice of Jesus inviting you in to understand these stories, to unravel the mystery of the good news of the gospel, recognizing that Jesus and his kingdom is a life of flourishing. It is the way of life that leads to peace and joy and contentment and mercy and grace and justice. And it's, it's by inviting us into his kingdom that he makes us more and more like Jesus. It is, it's that, as, as C.S. Lewis expressed to us, it's, we're not perfect now. Um, we have to figure out how do we live in this world where the kingdom of God is colliding with the earth that we're on now. It's the, it's the here, but, but not yet. There will be a day on that day of judgment where Jesus will come and human history as we know it and separate us out. He'll separate the different kind of fish from the nets, the sheep from the goat, the wheat from the tares, the different ways that he talks about that. And those who have ears to hear will know what Jesus is saying. It's my prayer this morning that you're among those people, um, that you will hear the good news of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit will plant that deep into your heart, uh, that your uh, heart would be the, a kind of soil that would receive that good news of Jesus. We'll talk about that parable next week. Uh, Andrew's going to unpack the parable of the four soils. So we'll continue down some of this path of thinking even next week. So my prayer for us is this morning is that we would be like that person out for a walk, stumbling across a field, finding a treasure that far is out of <laughs> more worth than anything he owns. He, he hides the treasure so nobody else finds it. He goes and he sells everything that he has. So you can come back and purchase that field, thus purchasing the treasure buried in it. Or maybe you're like that merchant. You're searching for all kinds of things. Maybe today's the day where you actually find that pearl that you're like, this is way, Jesus is way worth more than anything else that I've been looking for. And if you're a Christian today, may this be a reminder again. It's so easy, isn't it? Sometimes, even though that we know in our head, we know intellectually, we know in our heart, um, that this pearl is, is far more valuable than all these others. Sometimes we, we might get bored of this. Well, you know, I've looked at this long enough. I'm going to go and I want to look at these other things again. Let me encourage us to, to lean in and to continue to stare at the beauty of Jesus and his kingdom. Um, I hope that the, this, this series serves to do that as we continue to, to listen to the voice of Jesus as he communicates who he is, what his kingdom is like, that you and I might be citizens of that kingdom. We would understand what the culture of the kingdom is like, thus living out that kingdom culture. Um, that's my hope and prayer for this series, that the Lord would do much in our own souls, both individually and collectively as a church. Uh, and for those of you that maybe aren't part of our church listening in, um, that you would hear the voice of Jesus calling you into his kingdom as well.
Um, let me pray for us. Um, Father, we uh, want to begin to just mine the riches of your teaching this morning. Um, as we spend the next several weeks looking at specific parabolic teachings of Jesus that sit within the, the, the wider unified story of the scripture together, may we just continue to dig for these treasures. May we continue to mine these pearls. Um, would your spirit help us to see Jesus and his beauty? Um, may you continue to work in our hearts that we would, that we would actually uh, worship Jesus for what he actually is, a treasure that is far more valuable than anything else that we could give our lives to. Temporal things that are fleeting, that won't last. And Father, I pray that we would believe that more and more, that you would use this series as we look to the actual words and teachings of Jesus, that you would expand our hearts, that, you would, that we would be able to make room uh, for Christ. Uh, that the cares of this world wouldn't squeeze that out of us, uh, but that you would uh, help us to see him in all of his beauty and all of his glory. Um, Father, we know that your word doesn't return void to us, and so we uh, pray to that end. I pray for those that might not know you this morning, that, uh, that this would pique their curiosity, that they would want to look further, that they would want to hear the voice of Jesus, that they would have ears to hear. Uh, Father, would your spirit do that among us even today? And Father, as we now turn to uh, remembering how you've done all this for us through your body broken for us, your blood shed for us, as we take bread and wine together, um, Father, may, it, may that do this work as well. May it uh, cause us to see all of uh, your love for us, uh, that you yourself uh, knew that uh, having a people for yourself, a kingdom for yourself, was even worth sacrificing your own son for. Um, Father, may we follow in those footsteps, willing to sacrifice all for you and your kingdom. And we ask this in your name. Amen.